Welcome to the Stay Healthy Los Angeles podcast, aimed at helping you live an active, healthy, and enjoyable life in and around Los Angeles. Brought to you by Core by Design Clinical Pilates. And now, here's your host, physical therapist Emma Green. I want to say thank you to my guest today. So I have Dr. Kirsten Roberts with me today from um, APPI America. APPI is the Australian Physiotherapy and Pilates Institute. And she has kindly agreed to chat with me today about everything Pilates. So she is not only the head of APPI America, but she's also presenter for them physical therapist, and a clinical Pilates expert. So we're thrilled to have you here today with us. So thank, thank you for doing so that. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. This is such an honor. Oh, thank you. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your background then, Kirsten. So um, let's see. I'm a physical therapist, but uh, it really started, I can't, I can't really talk about myself without starting with uh, the dance world, really. I started as a Gosh, from the time I was two years old, all I wanted to do was dance. And so I've been doing ballet since I was four. And that was really my first exposure to both physical therapy and Pilates in general. So I had a, I had a small injury really as a dancer and um, was exposed essentially to the, the fact that the understanding of what dancers need in physical therapy and in general in the medical world was very limited. It's so, so much better now, but that was what kind of instigated what, and it was my mom, I think, that her wheels started turning um, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, essentially, and um, that just seemed to really make sense and click. And Pilates was, from the time I was 12, it was a required class in Okay. at the ballet studio that I was at. And I won't say at 12 years old that I loved Pilates. In fact, it was <laughs> a dreaded class, um, to be honest. But um, after becoming a physical therapist, uh, so I danced throughout undergrad and grad school. I danced um, professionally with San Diego Ballet and Southern California Ballet. And also did school, did undergrad at the same time, and then grad school. For physical therapy. And I knew that I wanted to, I guess I already always had in the back of my mind, this idea that, oh, it might be a great idea to combine Pilates with, you know, my other background. Now that I'm a physical therapist, being a dancer, you know, so often um, Pilates instructors were ex-dancers, etc. And so I had a lot of friends who had done some version of, there's so many options of different methods of Pilates. And um, it just, APPI actually kind of fell in my lap. I got a, I wasn't looking for anything at the time. I was within my first year of graduating PT school, working my first job. I'm at a sports medicine clinic and I got a flyer in the mail that was for Con Ed course for Matwork Level 1. And I basically was like, well, I may as well give it a shot. Who knows? And um, took the course and, well, I was hooked and I was really glad that it, that that is the one that fell into my lap because it wasn't until I did research a lot later on that I was like, oh, well, yeah, that's probably what I would have chosen if I had been looking, you know, and doing research. But to be honest, I really, I really wasn't. Um, yeah. And so I've been, been teaching, been presenting 
for since 2014 now, so for quite a few years, I took my Matwork One in 2010 or 11. I was trying to think about that, and then um, and I I was teaching. I've been teaching ballet since I was 17 years old. So teaching okay. is something that I've always loved, and um, the patient education side of physical therapy is one of the things that partly drew me to physical therapy is because I love that side of things. And so this seemed like a really natural fit. So I quickly followed my Matwork 1 with Matwork 2 and 3. And then um, I had those Matwork 2 and 3 with Glenn Withers, who's the founder of, or the co-founder of APPI. And he asked me if I'd consider being a presenter. And that is where my journey with Pilates really started. Nice. That sounds great. It's funny how we fall into these things, isn't it? Because I, I was a gymnast as a, as uh-huh. a kid and, and I discovered physical therapy as well through having a small injury and right. a physical therapist and thinking I could do this and yeah. then knowing that I could integrate it in with my love of sport and yes, it, it's, it's funny how we kind of go into those different directions. But so, so much so, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, but it is really kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you, you did actually touch on a little bit there with regards to the fact that APPI, the Australian Physiotherapy and Pilates Institute, do offer this training and that, it, that there are other methods out there. Can you talk a little bit about the different types of Pilates that are out there? Because I know as somebody who's been to a number of different Pilates classes, they can be completely different. So what is the difference? What's out there? Tell us a little bit about the history. Yeah, that's a really good question and um, is one of the things that I I think one of the things that you had mentioned we might talk about is like what's something you wish you knew going right. beforehand and that is something I had no idea. I just kind of thought all Pilates was Pilates and it was all the same and um, that's, that's really not the case, but it's not the case with anything. Physical therapy isn't physical therapy. Yoga isn't yoga. You know, there's everyone has their nuances and differences. Um, And like I mentioned, I have a lot of friends who have trained through a lot of different methods. And I think many have their pros and cons and their, you know, reasons that they are, might be better at one certain area than another certain area. For me, the biggest difference or the thing that set apart APPI, and like I said, I kind of fell into it, but I discovered along the way is really the foundation of how it was started. So the co-founders, Glenn and Elisa Withers, were both physiotherapists from Australia. And uh, Lisa was a dancer, so she'd had some exposure to Pilates in general growing up. And in Australia, the idea of clinical Pilates or the use of Pilates in the rehab setting was becoming more common. I think it started really more in Australia than in the U.S. here or in the U.K., um, that rehab side. And then the U.S., we've just started really seeing that take a turn for being more and more reformers in physical therapy clinics and more and more Pilates being advertised as this clinical side of things. So what they did is they really took the physical therapy mindset or the physio mindset with the traditional Pilates movements and did the work of essentially combining those things to make these movements more appropriate for the clinical or rehab population. So I think really what it is, is the 
where they started. So it starts at the foundation and then you grow on that. And that made a lot of sense to my mind as opposed to starting big and kind of working in. It starts in and you work out. I like to use the analogy with my patients very often or clients as of that of a house. The house can be beautiful, but the really important part are the things that we can't see. So the foundation. And oftentimes people just want to fix the outside and they want to work on, which I, I relate to the bigger muscles and, um, you know, athletes can be notorious for this is they, they get very focused on what we call our global muscles or the bigger muscles, the biceps, the, the six pack, um, abdominal muscles. And while they're all important and good, they are not actually the foundation. And so I spend a lot of time on patient education and looking at that. And that's one of the things that I felt like APPI did so well with the progression of their courses is let's look at the foundation. Let's make sure that we know how to address that. All of the other muscles are important too, but let's make sure we can address that first. See if there's any issues going on with the foundation and then layer on the rest of our exercises and muscles on top of that. Um, and I think that does come from that physio mindset, in particular, Australian physical therapy, physio yeah. mindset that I, I, I seem to see more with clinicians from Australia. Right. And so you mentioned their clinical Pilates, and that might be a term maybe that people have not heard of before. Um, so what is the difference between sort of what maybe some would say regular Pilates and yeah. then clinical Pilates? That is a really good question. And I think that while Pilates is becoming more common and more used as a term, it's still very misunderstood. I think people don't, people think, you know, I've had the a number of Uber or Lyft drives to the airport and inevitably the conversation comes up about what you do or where you're going to travel for. And most of my travel is for courses. And so that the word Pilates comes up and it always, I always get a kick out of what people, their opinions or what they think Pilates is or what they ask me. And um, that's been an eye-opening experience because I get to hear from just the general public, what they think Pilates is. And it's usually... What do they tell you? It's usually yoga. Like, oh, like that yoga stuff. Or, oh, isn't that about your... Maybe if they're a bit more educated about your core. Or, you know, I have recently was on an airplane and the guy would, wanted to tell me all about what his therapist did that did some Pilates. So that was really interesting. Right. And he, he wanted to show me the hamstring stretches that they gave him. And On the plane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, that's always fascinating. But I think the big difference between um, clinical Pilates and general Pilates is the specificity. Mm -hmm. So clinical Pilates comes from the idea that it is for a specific injury or client or need so it takes into account an individual's injuries, their pain, their, you know, mechanical deficiencies or the things that they have, their specific pathology and addresses that. So as opposed to more of your generalized Pilates class or program would be here is the set exercises. 
everyone across the board will get these set exercises. Right. And while that can be great for certain people, I think it when when it comes to people who have had injuries or pain, that's where I've seen the most, I guess, negative impact is that they'll go and do something that they've been told will be good for them. And it might be, but they're trying to do something on a foundation that has not been addressed. So the clinical Pilates side, I would say we use the, we focus on the brain's ability to switch on the correct muscles to make sure that we're using those right muscles correctly for the exercise and not compensating with other muscle groups. And very often um, because of life, right, pain, asymmetries, we tend to learn to compensate. And then if we just jump into exercises that are perhaps a bit more difficult than we should be doing, mm-hmm. what happens is we teach our brain to continue with those compensatory patterns, really, as opposed to rewiring and reworking those patterns. And I think that's something that clinical Pilates does really well, or it focuses on. Also, in general, the the training that a um, clinical Pilates instructor, sorry, yes, (laughs) I closed the curtains and everything because I knew the mailman would come. And they like to bark at him. Oh. Um, so, sorry. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but, yes, so for APPI, it's designed by physios, but the, the courses, we have two main tracks, only one in the U.S. that we've used, that we've been going through, and that's the clinical track, which is designed for healthcare professionals. So we can assume that there's some level of knowledge mm-hmm. coming into the training for Pilates, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, at the end of the day, years and years of study and training to get that healthcare degree. Obviously I'm, I'm saying physical therapists a lot because that's what I am. And that does tend to be the majority of the profession that takes our courses, but we've had chiropractors, occupational therapists, athletic trainers, doctors, nurses. So but there's a level of understanding from the healthcare background. Right. We're assuming that we then layer on the Pilates side of things. Yeah. So, so then if somebody feels like clinical Pilates could be something that could help them, um, mm-hmm. they know if they find somebody who has trained through APPI mm-hmm. that they are a healthcare professional who has this then additional level of knowledge with regards to clinical Pilates on top of that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really one of the things that we say would set ourselves apart and that every one of our courses are taught by a healthcare professional who is also a Pilates, a clinical Pilates instructor and a, a Pilates instructor, but they um, are a, a healthcare professional as well. And the majority are physical therapists. Right. So what type of people are, are really going to be helped by clinical Pilates? Great question. I um, Really anyone who's had pain or an injury. And uh, the majority of the research has been on low back pain or chronic low back pain, that non-specific low back pain that so much of back pain falls under. Mm-hmm. Um, and that category of people, I feel like really can benefit enormously from the 
clinical Pilates aspect at least first. Start there so that you can get that foundation under control and make sure that you're not just jumping into something that you strengthen all compensatory patterns that are already existing that we actually need to break as opposed to just play into. Mm -hmm. So what if, and, and this is sometimes what I hear from people as well, is that maybe they've tried physical therapy and it didn't work. Why then should they consider maybe going to a physical therapist if they then specialize in clinical Pilates? What are they going to get that's different? Yeah. What is that difference? How does that difference then help them? So good. I And I think that comes down to the fact that in, in any profession, you're going to find people who practice very differently. Mm -hmm. so, and, and that comes back to, we can all learn from one another. Uh, for me, the clinical Pilates element, because I took my first APPI course so early in my career as a physical therapist, it really set the course of how I treat. So I can't today, I couldn't tell you how I could treat someone, a patient in a physical, in a purely physical therapy setting mm -hmm. without my therapeutic exercise component from APPI or from the clinical Pilates world, because that is so a part of what I do. There are other therapists that do other things that I've learned from that are amazing, but then I'll teach them, you know, some of the clinical Pilates aspect and it's, it's just a different thought pattern. Mm -hmm. So if you've had more traditional physical therapy, going to someone who has, for me, I find that the exercise component, the understanding of the exercise component is, is something that I missed in physical therapy school, to be honest, that I felt like the clinical Pilates side from the physical therapy mindset did a much better job of putting together for me so that I had a, a way of looking at exercise in a more, a, a more critical manner, more specific, more precise, and getting more what I wanted out of it. So it's worth just trying some, something else, you know, someone that has a different set of skills that may be more appropriate for your specific injury or pathology. And um, yeah, for me, that clinical Pilates side has been has been huge. Mm -hmm. uh, just like you, you may try some go to someone who has more manual therapy skills or more instrument uh, assisted skills. We all have done different trainings. I um, one thing I wish I'd known as a PT student was graduating PT school really just gave you enough knowledge to be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> just to get in, but you really have to do. And so, so many physical therapists have done outside training and that can, can result in people with an enormous variety of skill sets that at the end of the day, none of us know at all. So, um, yeah, for me, from the exercise perspective and the results I've had, that is something that's definitely worth, worth at least giving a shot. Right. And, and so if somebody was considering this, because I know that there are a lot of people out there who, you know, maybe, maybe they've had low back pain for a long time. Maybe they have tried physical therapy before and it didn't work for them. Maybe their doctor said to them, well, it's one of those things. You're just going to have to live with it. Or here's some pain pills or, you know, right. maybe epidural shots or 
where where do they find somebody that they can tap into? What should they be expecting? How long does it take? Great to question. Like, how long does it take to see a difference? Yeah. Okay. This is one everyone wants to know the answer to this question, right? <laughs> and unfortunately, the answer is it depends, as in so many important questions. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say, and I was thinking about this, for me, I like to see an immediate change in, so for example, APPI is big on testing and retesting. Okay. So for example, I might use my, my assessment in the beginning of the five key elements, teach that do something, notice a movement pattern. Now I'm going to use that to determine what exercise I do to direct what I'm going to do next. And then I'll retest that original movement. And I should see a difference. I want to see an immediate change and I want the the patient or client to feel an immediate change. If there's not, then that might indicate, okay, maybe maybe my focus is in the wrong area. Maybe I need to look at this. Because there's so many reasons when we're, it's like a, a, the peeling back the layers of an onion. I don't know who had that that analogy that I heard first, but it makes so much sense. It's like, okay, that wasn't the layer we need I to. I think it's track. Pardon? Shrek came up with oh, that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're, we're peeling that back and I want to know where I need to focus more. So I want to see an immediate difference in that first treatment session. Mm-hmm. However, overall, so let's say we do, we do something. Let's say I, I do, I'll use an example. So an, an exercise like overhead reach, which is a pretty common exercise for us to use in that first assessment. And what we're looking at is just shoulder range of motion how far the arm goes overhead before there's some compensation from, for example, the rib cage. Mm-hmm. Now, if I see that at a certain degrees, that can indicate a lot of different things. Maybe there's tension in the fascia in the back. Maybe there's poor abdominal control, poor body awareness, breathing mechanics, lots of different things. Uh-huh. If I can pick one of those things to address and then retest, I should see a difference. Now, if the patient goes home, and doesn't do anything, most likely they'll wake up the next morning and it'll be exactly where it was when they came to see. Right. There's a couple things I say to people, you know, you didn't, oftentimes when I see someone, they didn't get to the point that they're at overnight. So we're not going to, we're not going to change it overnight. And also you don't, you don't eat an elephant in one bite. I love that one. So <laughs> we, have to, we have to acknowledge that, okay, this is going to take some time and some work, like anything worth doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think research-wise, as far as once-a-week classes of Pilates, they say six to eight are where you should really see some differences. So six to eight weeks are yeah. where you should really begin to see some mock differences in your body and notice that. Again, I want to see those little changes throughout, but I can't expect those things to be just overnight better. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah. No, no, for sure. Um, so the, the way I will structure my classes, I do eight week blocks. Perfect. Um, and so we, we test at the beginning, we test at the end, we see the difference. A lot of patients will say it about week three or four. That's yes. when they start to feel it. Yes. So I had one lady who had sciatica. She had numbness into her foot. She had tingling week three gone. Awesome. So it's, yeah. it's 
yeah, it, it, it is very interesting and everybody is different and exactly. such a hard question to answer because how long is a piece of string? <laughs> exactly. Um, right. And it does, it does really matter how long somebody's had it for, but also how much they are prepared to work on it. So within my eight week classes, they, they do only come in once a week, but they do have homework every day. Right. And that is the other thing that's a part of it is just how willing and diligent are you going to be to apply, not only to do your homework, but to apply these principles to your everyday life. Yes. So increased body awareness is something that I think is, it's hard to measure, but it is something that I think is so important and is a key of one of of the reasons for some of the success of clinical Pilates is because it's increased awareness that I then take it throughout my day. Mm-hmm. So it's not just can I find neutral spine on the reformer. Can I apply that to when I'm getting in my car, getting out of my car, standing, sitting, you know, can I apply these things to my everyday life? And the more that I can do that and think about that, the faster I'm going to see changes. Can somebody who's had say um, a spinal surgery, can they benefit from clinical Pilates? Absolutely. Yes. I would say with any, any significant pathology, very often one-on-one is the best to start with mm-hmm. because you do need that one and one-on-one attention from someone who can adjust and be right there. A lot of the risks of Pilates and clinical Pilates or any type of class, I'll say that in general, right. is just the fact that there's the supervision element, which is one of the reasons that our APPI classes are smaller. But nevertheless, if there's something, an acute injury or a surgery or something that I feel like I need to make, be right there, make adjustments for, you need to give me feedback, then the answer is the is one-on-one, at least to start. Yeah. And, and I will always recommend that as well, because you have to have that one-on-one element just to really ensure that somebody's doing what you think they're doing and yeah. doing it correctly and you're getting the response that you want. Once right. you're there, then it can be great to, to transition into a class. And I think that's Absolutely. a lot of times is what, what is missing when people, people have maybe heard that Pilates can be really good for the spine and they go out and they, they find a Pilates class and then there's 10 people in that class and the, the instructor is is up and down and can't supervise. And if that is a brand new beginner who doesn't have that body awareness, that's when problems do develop. And it's such a shame. It is. shouldn't hurt your back. Yeah, exactly. And it is something wrong. Yeah, that's um, a hot topic for me because I've had a number of experiences with, with even friends who, you know, they know what I do and they'll call me. One friend in particular, this is a, yeah, a couple of years ago, but she'd had a baby and um, was starting to get back to her exercise. I want to say um, her baby was maybe 10 months old or so. So she's, she's ready to, you know, to get going. Mm-hmm. And so she'd started some um, Pilates classes. And so I said, well, how's, how's that going? She said, well, you know, it, it, my back hurts, but that's normal. And I was like, what did you just say? <laughs> oh, no. No. No, that's not normal. Well, I'll say this. Maybe it's normal, but it's it shouldn't be. That doesn't mean it's correct. That not doesn't okay. mean that that, or I'll say it's common. It might be common. Mm-mm. That does not mean that it's normal or correct. 
Right. And um, yeah, that is one of my, for myself, I did, um, I had some of the worst back pain of my life during physical therapy school. And I was daunting professionally. I mean, I was in great shape, you know, but I was, and I was doing a whole lot of core and abdominal exercises that I had learned, to be honest, from my traditional Pilates upbringing. Now I hadn't taken any courses or anything like that, but I just, from what I'd learned Mm -hmm. as a dancer, and um, it wasn't until I took the APPI courses that I recognized what a disservice I was doing to myself because every exercise I was doing, I was playing into my compensations and actually hurting myself. And so it is a, it's a hot topic for me because people often think, oh, well, it's just, you know, just for people who are beginners or are not athletes or haven't exercised, they should be the ones to do clinical Pilates. I often find that it's my athletes that need it the most Mm -hmm. because they, and I can include myself in that, have developed such strong compensation patterns. And um, if there's been pain, that's the big thing. Pain affects how our bodies use certain muscles. And we have to address that, that foundation again before we can layer on these bigger muscles and right. move. So not necessarily just the person who who has had an injury, but mm-hmm. but even maybe somebody who thinks they they are really in shape as as you were and 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 still maybe not using the correct muscles in the correct way. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what I, I tell my dancers so often. I teach at a, a summer program, and it's thirteen to eighteen year olds. And the thing is, generally, you don't feel it when you're 13 to 18. Mm-hmm. But these, these patterns of movement, they, if you can change them now, like those are the things I wish I'd known when I was 15. Because it's not until, for me, until I was 23 that I, it really started catching up with me. And I, I hadn't had any huge injury or big thing. It was just this nonstop um, playing into these, these movement patterns that were not, not the best really. And so it took me going back, working on the foundational things and then progressing from there. So I do think that in general, it is a shame. I agree with you because it hurts my heart almost when it's the people who they're, they're willing to start doing something. They're like, okay, I'm going to take charge of my life. I'm going to go to a Pilates class or a yoga class or CrossFit, name whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And they do it, but they're trying to do it on a foundation that's not ready. Right. And they end up hurting themselves worse and, right. and causing more issues. And then, unfortunately, I often see they end up in this spiral of, well, I tried and it didn't work. It made me worse. Right. So movement's not the answer. So now I'm going to as well sit on the couch. What's the point? Mm-hmm. And that's always a shame, I think, because it's like you had the right motivation. You just started at, at a place that maybe was not correct for you. At the wrong level, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to backtrack a little bit there as yeah. well, because you mentioned um, one of your friends who, who had had a baby and, and Pilates is one of those things that people hear about for um, pregnant ladies and for um, after giving birth. What's your take on that? Great question. And um, very appropriate for me right now. Um, I'm going on, yeah, I'm going on nine months pregnant at the end of this week. <laughs> Congratulations. So, thank you. I will say 
my own Pilates practice has changed substantially. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is a problem is people, because there is this mindset, oh, this is good for pregnancy. People think, oh, I can do nothing, get pregnant, and then jump into a Pilates class. Right. And um, I had a friend who did that actually with yoga and uh, ended up with a terrible diastasis, which I know is another topic, but. Um, what is a diastasis? Just yeah. Essentially where the, the abdominal muscles separate. So the, the diastasis recti is the, what holds our abdominals together in the, in the middle. Mm-hmm. And it's when that starts to pull apart, which in pregnancy, you've got something pushing on that and stretching your abdominals. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to work as, as they used to, which I've found out. You just expect right. your abdominals <laughs> to do something and they're not there for you. <laughs> so I think it's important that people, like, like anything, and in general, the, the advice is out there that, you know, if you're not a runner, don't start running when you're pregnant. Right. If, you're, if, you're, if you've never danced before, don't start dancing when you're pregnant. If you've never done Pilates before, the best time is probably not to start a high-level Pilates class when you find out you're pregnant. Right. Now, I continued with my Pilates practice throughout my first and even second trimester, and then I started really modifying mid-second into my third because, again, of the pressure on the abdominal muscles you can't expect them to work the same. And one of the dangers, I work with a lot of professional dancers and um, very often the mindset is that they are, they want to get back to dancing and get back their pre, pre-baby pre body really quickly. Yes. And they can actually do damage trying to get into high level abdominal work too early because you use those muscles and they actually can pull apart that diastasis. What we have to focus on, again, I feel like I keep, like I'm beating a dead horse here, but is that foundation. And so some of those foundation muscles that do wrap around and knit things together, generally a lot lower level exercises than people want to do or think that they should be doing. And yeah, so that's, that's my take on pregnancy. Some of the stuff that I see that is out there, perhaps the person doing it is in, was in great shape and had been doing exercise leading up and the exercises that they're demonstrating are just too high level. And for people in general, mm-hmm. let alone for someone who's pregnant and hadn't been doing any of this beforehand. So not to say that you can't, I, I was able to do a lot more than I actually thought for a lot longer, but I had established some base beforehand. I think the best thing that someone can do for sure. yeah, is, is when they, are thinking about getting pregnant, that's the time to go and start some clinical Pilates and learn some things so that you have a base to work from when you do get pregnant. So what about the huge number of ladies out there who develop back pain during mm-hmm. pregnancy? And again, maybe have been told Pilates is good for that or maybe go to the physical therapist and then are told, okay, you, you need to be doing some clinical Pilates and sort of what, what sort of things should they be looking for? You probably hit the nail on the head there when by saying starting it way beforehand before they're pregnant, but there, there are, there's that huge chunk of the population where they are pregnant and they're suffering with back pain and what should they be doing? Yeah. I think I I would have to go back again to that one-on-one session with a clinical Pilates physical therapist 
yeah. um, because they can adjust the exercises specific to your body and, and make those adjustments that you need so that you, because not everybody is the same and everyone has slight differences and tendencies and you want someone watching you at least um, for a couple sessions, sometimes I'll do that with people is have a few sessions of the one-on-one and then they can come into a class. Mm-hmm. They have to demonstrate to me that they can make those adjustments themselves. Um, and that's why patient education is so important. And it's a huge component of what we teach in our courses is empowering mm-hmm. and teaching your patients. Because I would like any, at the end of the day, people are going to end up in classes that are not ideal. And if I could get everyone into a studio like yours, wouldn't that be wonderful? But at the end of the day, not everyone is going to have access to that. So if I can empower my patient or client with, okay, when you feel this, when you feel doming, when you feel pain, when you feel these certain things, you need to know how to make those adjustments in that class for Mm -hmm. your own body. Because not always are you going to be with an instructor who knows how to cue you or in a class that is perfectly designed for that. If I'm concerned that they don't or can't do that, then they're not ready to be in a general class. Yeah. They can be with someone who is able to cue and correct them appropriately. So you mentioned doming there. What's doming? Doming um, or pooching, um, lots of names for this. It's essentially when the, and this the visual can be helpful with this, but essentially your underlying muscle of your abdominals called your transverse abdominis runs in a, the fibers run horizontally. Mm-hmm. On top of that, we have several other layers of abdominals. The top one is, or one of the top is our rectus abdominis, which the fibers run vertically. So what we want in a healthy abdominal contraction is all of these muscles working together when we're at full force. Mm -hmm. We don't want the bigger top muscle working without the bottom muscle. When that happens, we see doming. What doming is, is a raised area in the tummy where basically that middle section, so if someone's laying on their back and lift up their head and the middle section pooches up towards the ceiling instead of drawing in, that's doming. So that is an indication that you need to make an adjustment that perhaps the exercise is too hard, that perhaps you need better cueing, that you need to think about the foundation, the deeper layer of muscles more, or have someone who knows what they're talking about and can cue you to make those adjustments. Sounds great. So the reason it's important is because um, of the attachment of the muscles in our spine. So when we dome, then we don't have the support from the muscles that surround our low back and give us a lot more stability. So then that would put more pressure on the low back and that's when people are going to hurt themselves, right? When you hear people saying, exactly, hurt my back. Yeah. Okay. So um, how, how would somebody know if, if clinical Pilates is going to be the right thing for them? How can they investigate it more? I think just looking for someone who teaches it. Um, I was thinking about like what people would not benefit and it's actually... I mean, if you think about it, there's who cannot benefit from increased body awareness and better posture. And the list is pretty short, I think. Um, I actually looked, was doing some research because I was like, who, surely there's someone, but who would not benefit from this? And really research-wise, there's only two people that there's a consensus on, and that's women with preeclampsia 
So pregnant women with preeclampsia, just as a general contraindication, because they're advised not to exercise due to, you know, mortality and morbidity of both them and their baby. Mm-hmm. And then the other, the other one that I found any consensus on was unstable fractures that are supposed to be immobilized. Right. So you have an unstable fracture that's supposed to be not moving. Mm-hmm. Don't go do a bunch of movement. Right. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. But other than that, really, for the most part, I think like you had mentioned surgeries and all right. these things. Yes. At some, sometimes we just need to, it needs to be one-on-one. It yeah. needs to be lower level. It needs to be with someone who is experienced in dealing with your particular diagnosis, mm-hmm. but they can still be doing clinical Pilates. Right. Maybe you're not appropriate yet for a class, but there's very few people that I can think of. I did think, you know, and that comes back to the clinician's ability to notice red flags. So things that are perhaps not mechanical, like pain, night pain, things like that, that could, if you're not seeing the changes that you would expect normally, maybe you need to send someone to go and have, have a doctor's appointment. I mean, right. tumors, cancer, other things like that. That's, those are not things we're, des- we're going to treat. Right. If we know they exist, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you're contraindicated because right. we, can, we can address those things, but we should know. So if we all should be doing this, yeah, that's great. At what age do we start? Start what? Pilates? Yeah. Great question. I think um, this comes down to the, the person teaching the classes too. So I'm not a pediatric physical therapist, but I've taught a lot of ballet mm-hmm. and I've taught ballet from the age of three. So... <laughs> What I would teach a three, six, eight-year-old is going to be a very different class than a 30-year-old. Right. But that doesn't mean I can't be doing some of the same things. And so I think that maybe having kids in the same class as adults is not as helpful. But you could certainly tailor classes for kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And that comes down to the the experience of the person teaching the class Mm -hmm. and what they you know, what kind of population they want to work with. I also have not done a ton of neuro Pilates, but I, there's a bunch of people who've taken the courses that are neuro specialist physical therapists, and they have done awesome work bringing Pilates, clinical Pilates into the neuro setting. It's not something I would be as confident with initially, just because I haven't worked with that population a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that someone else couldn't use that or make adjust you just have to make adjustments for the population that you're working with yeah I see a whole lot of Pilates mommy and me classes in your future so what would be a common myth about Pilates great one I love this question um, I think, and this is for Pilates, not just clinical Pilates, but Pilates well, in general. And that is that it's one that I at least see pretty pervasive is that it's just for women. And it is, it's, it actually fascinates me because Pilates was developed by a man, yeah. Joseph Pilates. <laughs> and a lot of the, of the larger institutes of Pilates were also either founded or co-founded by men. Um, I actually looked up some celebrities that use Pilates too. Yes. I mean, the list is like 
LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Tiger Woods, Hugh Grant, Sylvester Stallone, just to name a few. David Beckham. I mean, it's, yes, exactly. It still seems like, I don't know, for me, even the, the, to convince even the men in my own family that Pilates is not just for ladies. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's funny to me. So oftentimes in the clinic, I won't call it Pilates. I'll just work with people. Right. You know, say core activation or, or yeah. muscle re-educate, whatever. I'm calling mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. and then tell them. And that was Pilates, by the way. And yeah. they're like, oh, really? What? <laughs> but I don't know why. Though. I, think it's, I think it's changing. Just like I think yoga yeah. used to be that way. And yoga has certainly now crossed into, I, I mean, most of the yoga classes I go to, there's not just as many, but there's plenty men in the classes. Yeah, for sure. So the Pilates classes I go to, it's rare to yeah. have um, even a few men, guys in the class. But um, the other, the, one of the other myths for me is that you have to have the machines to be doing Pilates. And I love the machines. I love the reformer, the Cadillac, the chair, all of those things. Mm-hmm. But Pilates was initially a mat program. And you can do Pilates on the mat. So people think if they only associate Pilates with the machines, then they don't think they can do anything at home. Right. But actually, no, you can do a lot at home. And what I predominant, how I started, I didn't have a reformer or any equipment in the PT clinic that I worked at. And so I predominantly use mat work. Now I have at the, I, I work at Texas Ballet Theater when I'm home and do Pilates or physical therapy, but also some Pilates there. And they do have a reformer, but it's in the back. And, and I don't, I actually find that I often use the mat more just yeah. because, I've, because you can apply it so much more easily to home. Yeah. But that's another thing that myth that I think. Yeah, definitely. People people think about and they, and a lot of times they'll call it those torture devices. Right. You know, it looks like the rack or it looks like you're gonna hang me up or string me up and yeah. Yeah, definitely for sure. That's that is a huge one. I'm really glad you brought that up. Because yeah, I I will I'll always stop people with mat as well. And then because then there is a really nice homework element mm-hmm. and if you want to go onto the machine, then it's an option. Because it yes. is fun, but it's not for everybody. Nice to have that option. Yeah, definitely. So right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking through the questions and I think we've kind of answered so many of them. So yeah. is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Um, I think we've covered a whole lot. I think um, one of the things you had mentioned was a, was a referral and um, like do people yes. need a referral? And I think that's one thing to... Um, that can be so different across states and depends on if the clinician is doing physical therapy and clinical Pilates or mm-hmm. just operating as a Pilates instructor. Right. And for myself in Texas, I'm more limited as a physical therapist actually than a Pilates instructor. So if I'm working at the ballet mm-hmm. underneath the covering of a license, I don't have to think about whether I'm using a physical therapy skill or a Pilates skill. Mm-hmm. I've treated people at my home in a little home studio. And I, if they don't have a referral, because for Texas, we need a referral as right. physical therapists. I have to, of course, I can't turn off my PT brain. Mm-hmm. 
you're you're always going to use that, but I won't. An obvious example would be dry needling. I wouldn't right. do any dry needling because mm-hmm. I don't have that. Obviously, falls under my physical therapy license and mm-hmm. not under my Pilates instructor qualification, right? Or joint mobilizations, things like that. But yeah, overall, I can I can actually treat someone with my Pilates more easily at times than as a physical therapist. So in California, we do have direct access. Mm-hmm. So um, people don't need a referral to go and see a physical therapist. If they would like their insurance to cover it, then that's when the doctor's referral is, is needed from the insurance point of view. Um, I do use clinical Pilates as part of my practice. And a lot of the times then, because it is, it is then, physical therapy it is classed under physical therapy people can claim a lot back through their insurance so that can be quite a nice way to do it because they they start to almost feel like they're exercising and they're getting back into doing almost like a norm normal kind of exercise class i'm doing pilates that's not rehab even yeah. though it can it is and their insurance may cover some of that which yeah and thrilled about yes so definitely. um they can they can then get that we're not allowed to do dry needling over here, which really gets <laughs> me every time because I could I could do acupuncture in the UK and I can't do it here. Wow. But, yeah. oh, maybe that will change in the future, hopefully. Hopefully. But we'll see. Um, okay, so I have just a few questions now about you. Okay. So I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite book? My favorite book? Great question. I think I... I have to, I have to say the book of Proverbs, which might be a bit cliche, but it's like, there's 31 chapters for 31 days of the month. It's a great, when I find, when I start with a chapter for that day, I always find that I have a, a better day. And I mean, it's called the book of wisdom. So that's always helpful. And then anything by um, Malcolm Gladwell. I love his, his books. Yes, Outliers, David and Goliath, Blink. Um, I think I've read a lot, yeah, a lot of his books. I haven't, lately, the only books I've been reading are to do with labor and delivery and children. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't read just a book for fun in a little while, but I do like his books a lot. Get back to it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So when you're not at the office, what do you enjoy doing for fun? Again, I guess that might be a little different right now that you're nine months pregnant. So yes, yeah, I've definitely gone through different seasons. But my husband and I love to go camping, hiking, rock climbing. Yeah, just get outside. So yeah. that's something that we're looking forward to doing again. Hi. What is one piece of advice you would give to your 21 year old self? Oh, that's a great question. You don't have to have it all figured out now. Life's love gonna that. change, and <laughs> it's. You know, things just have a way of working themselves out. I would have had no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing today at 21 years old, but I thought I had to know exactly what what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. And yes, there's some decisions you make and some things you do that set your life on a certain course, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to know all of the answers. Right, for sure. So where can people find out more about you, connect with you, find out more about APPI and, and maybe find an APPI certified therapist? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the APPI website for America is appiamerica.com. And then we also have an Instagram and Facebook page. My professional Instagram and Facebook page are Dr. K. Roberts. There is, we have a YouTube, what's it called? Channel. Thank you. Um, for APPI America. And uh, I've done a lot of the videos on that channel. Right. Um, that I, we need to update a little bit more, but we, the, we've just recently added some spiky ball videos of how to use your spiky balls to get some release in different tension in different areas. So those are fun ones. And then there are videos in general from APPI health health group from headquarters in the UK um, on their APPI health group channel. But the APPI America channel has more of my personal videos. Yeah. And then appiamerica.com has classes that you can do in the, you know, at the convenience of your home. We've just added a low back pain class and a beginner class, things that you can do at home following along if you don't feel ready yet to go to a class. Sounds great. So if somebody was looking for um, sort of a certified APPI instructor, how, how do they find somebody? How do they know that they're certified? Is there a website they can go to for that? Yeah, they can go to the appihealthgroup.com website and click on find an instructor there. And then we're working on getting that information onto our APPI America site as well. Um, they can also email info at appiamerica.com. We can send it, you know, in their specific area, and then we can have send them some information about people in that area that we may know of that have either gone through the whole process and become certified or are in process of getting certified. Okay. Sounds great. So thank you so much for doing this. It's been really nice just to chat. Thank you. Yeah, it's been um, lovely. Yeah, and, and you've given a lot of great insights there and really brought up a lot of, of really great things because I think when people think Pilates, they think a lot of these different things. So that's been really, really helpful. So awesome. thanks so much for doing that. Um, and uh, I'll put everything in the show notes so people can kind of find you um, and, and find more information out about clinical Pilates. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy Los Angeles podcast, sponsored by Core by Design Clinical Pilates. To stay connected with the Stay Healthy Los Angeles community, visit www.stayhealthylosangeles.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Stay Healthy Los Angeles podcast.